0: Good evening. This is attorney Vince Davis, and you're on the radio with the Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. This evening, I am broadcasting live from Arcadia, California. It's hot outside. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of the marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last for a lifetime. You've got questions, well, we've got answers. Family law legal experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support, and things and all of the issues that are involved in a divorce um, legal case in the courts of California. Tonight, we have back with us a very special guest. Uh, she has been an, a guest with us before, and she's back tonight, and we're going to be talking about some things. I want to welcome back our very special guest tonight, Katherine McWillie. She is the CEO of Custody Calculations. For listeners who are unfamiliar with her work, Catherine has 32 years of experience dealing with family law, 24 years as a law enforcement officer with the Los Angeles Police Department responding to radio calls dealing with divorce and custody. She was also a first responder to child abuse investigations. Catherine has spent 10 years researching family law, Where she has identified that divorce and custody issues may be responsible for twenty five percent of the crime in the United States. Catherine has been a custody a child custody and divorce coach for the last eight years working with clients all over the United States and abroad. By the way, I hear congratulations are in order, Catherine? I hear you are going to be presenting in Prague next year at the International Academy of Law and Mental Health Conference. That's very impressive. Welcome, Catherine.
1: Thank you, Vince. It's a real pleasure to be back with you on the show tonight, and yes, I am excited to be a speaker at the conference in Prague next
0: year. Catherine, so tonight's topic is on family law reform utilizing juries instead of judges in decisions dealing with divorce and custody cases.
1: The right to a trial by a jury is really deeply embedded in the very foundation of our American belief in justice and can be found in the Sixth and Seventh Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which preserve the right to jury trials. However, this is not a right that's consistently available to all litigants in the civil uh, arena.
0: Well, Catherine, I know here in California, um, litigants in family law cases are not entitled to juries. So, Catherine, tonight, where would you like to begin? Well,
1: I thought we would cover three areas. One is what would be required to implement juries and family law in the impact of this decision, including the impact on the public and private sector, which would bear the brunt of this requirement. Two, since decisions by juries have not been without controversy, have juries demonstrated they can function more effectively in family law than a judge? And three, based on this discussion, do I personally support juries in family law? Well, there's obviously so much more that we could discuss on this issue based on time restrictions. Those are the three areas I thought I would limit the discussion to. I guess we could always do a second show at a later date if the opportunity arose. Your thoughts?
0: You know, I've been practicing almost 30 years And uh, in family law, and many times I've wondered, cases would sometimes turn out differently if we had a jury instead of a judge deciding issues. So, Catherine, let's get started.
1: Okay, since this is an L.A.-based show, let's use California as an example, California's court system is really one of the largest in the world. It serves a population of more than 38 million. We're about 12% of the total U.S. population. We have uh, 58 counties and more than 500 court buildings, 2,000 judicial officers, and another 19,000 branch employees throughout the state. And during the fiscal year 2013 to 2014, 7.5 million cases were filed statewide in superior courts. Now, family law, disillusions, legal separations, annulments, accounted for about 138,000, almost 139,000 cases. Other family law filings like paternity child support were roughly about another 242,000, bringing the total number of cases at about Let's just round it off, 382,000. Break that down. That's about 31,000 cases per month. And that's if we're collecting all the numbers correctly, which we may not be. For instance, cases are often required to come to court five to seven times before there's actually a hearing. So these numbers capture filings, not the multiple dates for the same cases, which could be another impact when we start discussing uh, juries and the number of continuances and how do we reduce that impact. So if we're just talking about numbers here, if we deduct blackout days, weekends, holidays, administration, you're left with, say, an average of 16 business days per month to hear cases, 16 or 17 days. That breaks down to about 1,800 cases a day in family law alone, not counting criminal, So juries require 12 members plus additional members known as alternates in case a jury member has to be replaced for illness or conflict or any other number of issues. So let's average that to 15 jury members. That translates to almost 30,000 additional jury members every day courts in session just for family law, another 477,000 per month and nearly 6 million every year. Those are pretty big numbers, and I don't think that anyone's really thought about that in that capacity before. I mean, have you heard numbers like that thrown around when you've heard discussions about juries instead of courts?
0: You know, Catherine, I must be honest and I must confess, I haven't heard numbers like that. And to be honest with you, I haven't even thought of the numbers in that matter. Those numbers are staggering. Audience, if you yep. are just joining us, I'm interviewing Catherine McWillie, the CEO of custody calculations in a child custody and divorce coach. We are discussing reform issues of using juries versus judges in family law cases. Uh, Catherine, what else should we be discussing regarding these jury numbers?
1: Well, these numbers are not to be equally distributed among the public. Language issues, family or medical issues, or other hardships are going to remove a significant percentage of the population just as they do now in criminal courts and other civil hearings. So that's going to place an even greater burden on the remaining pool of available applicants. But the hardcore reality is if we're unable to sustain the jury numbers necessary to meet the demands, cases are going to need to be continued. This one issue could result in further delays and backlog in an already overburdened, overall family law court system now does that mean we should not consider the option not saying that but we better pretty think pretty hard and long on the plus and minus column is this really a viable option when we discuss reform considering the demands it would place on the entire system and the public and i'll go into that a little bit more in a moment
0: Well, Catherine, you mentioned a moment ago that there are other considerations. What are those issues?
1: But you don't need to be a mathematician to see these numbers are pretty big, and the demand is not just going to be on the public. For working jury members, there's going to be an additional burden on employers who need to give employees time off for jury duty. Would that be paid or unpaid by the employer? Is the employer going to have to hire someone else to handle the workload while the other employee is on jury duty, creating another hardship on the public and businesses at a time when we probably can least afford it? issue of physically absorbing the nearly 6 million more jury members. This isn't going to happen without additional court staffing management systems, even parking spaces. Now, why would parking be an issue? Because the courts don't have sufficient parking for witnesses and jury members now and sign contracts for additional off site parking. One of the reasons why you see so many cars, police cars, parked in the red which is now discouraged and costing taxpayers thousands of dollars for officers to park in these parking lots too. Plus smaller courtrooms without jury boxes would have to be merged to accommodate jury seating. So now we're going to have fewer courtrooms that will create more delays, larger backlogs, not just in family law, but elsewhere in the civil and criminal cases, causing a ripple effect to the courthouses that would be impacted. Another issue is jury members are paid about $15 a day in California. In some states, it's $40 a day. That's going to add another $85 million just to the California court budget, money that we don't have. And that money is going to have to be come from somewhere. So you can see that the issues of juries is very far from being simple or inexpensive to implement. However, one of my primary concerns is really the personal impact and hardship of this decision on the public. Let's start with transportation issues. Not everyone owns a vehicle, and public transportation is not always convenient or available near courthouses. Public transportation would be an additional cost to families. Childcare, another issue. If the jury member is a single parent or has parenting time during jury duty, how are these children going to get to school if a parent must be at the courthouse at the same time? You know, we aren't connected in our neighborhoods the way we used to be, and there may be no one available to help. And just like businesses, the public is going to face reduced wages, possible loss of employment, and other emergencies that come into play to men Depending on the number of days, a jury service is going to be required for each member. And if parents and non-parents thought they missed too much time from work now to attend court on their issues, the additional delays caused to pick a jury will add even more time to the process of each issue as that they go to court. And then there's always the then, you know unintended consequences on a scale this large other expenses not anticipated where a government program is involved. So we have more questions than answers at this point. Can we reduce this impact? Yes. We could reduce the number of jury members from, say, 12 or 14 to 6. We could limit the scope of juries to some areas of family law and not all areas as a starting point.
0: You know, Catherine, before um, you started, giving us these numbers, I was a big proponent of having juries or modified juries in Family Law Matters. But now that you throw out all of the details, um, it's kind of scary, both from a budgetary point of view and a just a practical point of view. I had been thinking of just having a jury, you know, decide my family law case so that it wouldn't just be in the hands of one single person. Catherine, I think everyone understands that for California, this would be a huge undertaking. But what about smaller states? Would the impact be as significant and difficult to implement?
1: Well, that's a great question. Let's use another state as a comparison. Let's run the numbers for, say, New Hampshire. Obviously, there's going to be a significant difference between the numbers for California and those in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is the seventh smallest state in the country. The court system serves a population of only 1.33 million people. There are ten counties – and only about 40 court buildings. They only have 90 judicial officers and about 488 judicial branch employees. During their fiscal year, 2013-2014, they heard just about 150,000 cases in the courts statewide. Their family law filings accounted for just under 19,000 cases. So essentially the population levels will automatically adjust the issues as to the number of filings, courthouses, personnel, and other issues. So while there will be some variances specific to, you know, each state for any number of reasons, essentially if you break down the percentages of the impact, whether the state is California or New Hampshire to implement juries, it's going to be the same impact. The numbers are just going to be smaller, which is why it's important to break down the numbers into percentages, because if you look at just the numbers, it'll just seem like it'll be so much easier and simpler, but the impact is still going to be the same. Now, obviously, this is a best guess, a best assessment, without researching the numbers and percentages to, specific, uh, to all 50 states, which I did not do prior to the interview. This is, you know, my best uh, guess. So, what do you think about that on the variables? Do you think this is an, adequate, uh, an accurate assumption?
0: I think your assumption is accurate. Um, you know, I'm one of those types of lawyers that would love to have um, some cases, you know, or at least the option or opportunity to have certain you know, questions of fact determined uh, by, a, by a jury. But the numbers are just staggering, especially, you know, I practice primarily in Southern California, uh, Los Angeles County. Um, All the numbers would be staggering. And the amount of people would be staggering, you know, needed to implement this type of jury system. I mean, you know, in the past maybe five, six years, the Superior Court um, has had budgetary constraints and uh, I know most counties, as well as Los Angeles County a few years ago, or maybe a year ago, were, you know, they were laying off employees in record numbers. I'm not sure that we could afford to have the jury uh, system in family law, even if I thought it was a good idea. Who's going to pay for it? I mean, those are some of the things I guess we have to practically think about.
1: But well, and these issues, just when people talk about reform, they just don't look at what it would take to implement it. it's It's a wonderful concept. Let's do juries. I, I hear that discussion, that that line, that sentence thrown out. And that's why I really thought it was an important subject to cover. So that people could really look at, the balance sheet to decide is this really a viable option and what would it take and what should we be looking at and, you know, what are our options because we need viable options when we talk about reform in family law.
0: You know, Catherine, you've been around the judicial system and the family law system uh, for a long time. Let's set aside the issue of the numbers and the dollars, to set that aside, do you think it's a good idea for jurors to decide issues of custody and visitation, or should we leave it to the family law judge?
1: Well, I'm going to give my personal opinion as part of our third discussion point. So why don't we if we've got any callers at this point, this might be a good time to break and give callers an opportunity to ask any questions. I don't know if we've got anyone on the line that, that wants to uh, come on board?
0: No one's on the line right now, so I was just going to move to this next topic.
1: Okay. So I realize some people may not be ready to ask some questions right now. We can come back to that in a few minutes or okay. later in the show.
0: Moving to our next talking point, which is have juries prove more, prove to be more fair and reliable and constitutional and criminal and other civil court cases? And have they demonstrated they could function more effectively than a judge in family law?
1: Well, that's really a loaded question. You know, as a law enforcement officer, retired law enforcement officer, I can tell you without question that in criminal cases, there are frequently significant disagreements on the outcome of case. Regardless if that decision is made by a judge or a jury, victims, defendants, district attorneys, defendants, attorney, police, and the public in criminal cases often disagree. And decisions by juries have certainly not been without controversy in all areas of the court system. Without too much effort, I could provide a long list of jury decisions that the public and the involved parties disputed. Civil trials, too, same thing. Many corporations healed the decisions by juries. Let's take the current environment in our county right now. Rioting began after the decision by the Ferguson, Ferguson grand jury two years ago in the shooting of Michael Brown. It has continued to sweep the nation with a grievous outcry against the decision made by a jury not to indict the officer after hearing all the evidence. The O.J. Simpson case in the trial of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman of not guilty, also a jury decision. Juries are not some new, untried area in the last several years. We come into this discussion with a long history of data on juries in criminal and civil cases. In fact, a number of decisions by juries, good, bad, or objectionable, Maybe equal to or worse than that of the decisions made by judges, but one worth considering in assessing the decision to implement jury systems in family law. Now, I will tell you, that was my perspective as I prepared for this interview. I was really not in favor of juries for all the numbers and all the, the other issues we've discussed. But to my surprise, what I learned is that there is significant research comparing the decisions made by juries versus judges. It's an area that's been under study for some time now. As early as 1966, a gentleman by the name of Harry Clavin, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing this correctly, and Hans Zeissel asked judges, thousands of cases, about 7,200 cases to report both how the jury decided the case and how they would have decided if it had been a bench trial. In the civil cases, they found an agreement rate between juries and judges at about 75 to 80 percent on the issues of liability. I, I have to tell you, I, I really found that surprising with regard to damages Another surprising point, judges would have awarded more in 39% of the cases and less in 52% of the cases. In criminal cases, they likewise found an agreement rate of approximately 75% between the judge and the jury. So in the majority of cases where judges reported favoring a different verdict from that reached by juries, juries were more lenient acquitting when judges would have in more would have likely convicted and in explaining the reasons for these disagreements judges mentioned a variety of defendant characteristics capable of producing sympathy and let's face it the reason why any attorney would choose a jury over a judge is because they feel the jury would be more sympathetic and the research has certainly proved out what we all believed was correct. So what are some of the issues that produce sympathy? Youth or old age, gender, attractiveness, remorse, family responsibilities, and occupation. The original findings by Calvin and Ziesel have stood up well under the test of time. A later study by Perry R. Perry Santel found that a majority of Georgia's Superior Court judges reported their agreement rate with jury verdict, verdict, excuse me, in negligent cases was about the same. And a recent study by another researcher, Eisenberg and colleagues of a judge jury agreement in criminal cases. So we're really kind of finding out that there may not be this big, um, there may not be this large difference in juries and judges. Now, in another study that I recall, tried to pull it up before the uh, interview today, was that the longer jury members served on a grand jury, the more the juror was aligned similar to decisions made by the judge. So, I mean, do you find this surprising? I mean, I know I did, Vince.
0: I find it very surprising. Um, of course, I haven't done any studies on it, and I'm just basing it on my experience as uh, a lawyer, gut-level feelings and all, which are you know, sometimes wrong. But I find those numbers very surprising. Um, for example, one of the numbers that you mentioned, I think you said that... Uh, when, when with regard to damages, judges would have awarded more in 30.9% of the cases and less than 52% of the cases. I I thought it would have been 39. That number would have been much, much lower. And, and less in 52 cases, I would have thought that that number um, would have been much, much higher.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. well, I'm, I even found it... I found it surprising that there is even research on this.
0: It seems to be a lot of research.
1: quite a bit yes,
0: very interesting. Have there been any books or just articles or studies that have been done and published?
1: Oh, yes, tremendous amount of uh uh published research study and books. Staggering, actually. Wow. You know, considering considering, I thought this was really a new area.
0: Right. How did you get interested in this, Catherine, in this particular?
1: Well, it's, you know, I'm on the forefront of so many discussions regarding uh, reform, and this is just frequently a topic that comes up uh, oftentimes, but parents feel that if we had juries instead of judges, that the opportunity for a more fair decision could be spread out and that it, it wouldn't rest in the hands of one person and that one person, uh, you know, is subject to more bias in a final decision than a jury. And I, I, think it warrants any, I think it warrants investigation. There are some very valid points to that. On the other hand, the research is showing that there's really not a significant difference. But, again, that's a best guess. We're basing that on criminal and other civil cases. Whether that will bear out under research uh, in family law remains to be seen.
0: Um, my audience, I am. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm interviewing Catherine McLean, CEO of Custody Calculations in a Child Custody and Divorce Coach. We are discussing reform issues of using juries versus judges in family law cases. Catherine, so how do you interpret this data?
1: Well, you know, before we jump into that, uh, why don't we give listeners, do we have anyone ready to um, come forward and ask any questions at this point?
0: I don't have anybody in the queue.
1: Okay, great. All right, so then let's go ahead. And so how do we interpret the data? Well, imagine if all this data is correct. We spend all this time, money, and effort. We commit all to the hardships on the public, the businesses, We pass all the necessary legislation. We find the money. We accept all the consequences, delays, and we find the improvement is so negligent that the cost and hardship was nowhere near justified. Worse, that we should have known going in because the data was there. We just chose to ignore it. Now we have to mop up another system meant to improve the prior system, and we failed. Same old story, another failed government program. And and I am concerned about this. This is a gamble. Could family law data be the exception, which we just said? Maybe. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, we just don't know. More questions. Do I believe that some cases will do better and some will do worse? Absolutely. Are these cases that do worse justified? Are the cases that do better justified? I don't know. Again, more questions than answers. Currently, there are two states that have opened the door to this issue that have jury trials, Texas and Georgia. Both states provide a limited scope for juries to hear on some, but not all, of the issues. Georgia divorce juries can decide alimony, child support, and distribution of assets and debt. Custody of the children, though, is only determined by the judge. In Texas, juries can determine custody but not the visitation or child support. Texas juries also can hear cases where one parent seeks to terminate the parental rights of another or if uh, One is trying to prove paternity. During fiscal year 2014, Texas had 174 jury trials. Just before the interview, I actually called the administration of the courts for Texas, and they were able to give me the number of jury trials. They weren't able to give me the actual number of days that a jury sat. Uh, in trials but they could tell me the number of times that jury trials were chosen and I was actually surprised the number was this low. When I contacted Georgia administration of the courts they don't track the number of trials by a jury and they could not provide any information so obviously going forward if juries are going to be considered on a larger scale we need to start by finding out what Texas and Georgia have learned. So, let me talk, toss the question back to you. What are your thoughts on this? You know, were you surprised, you know, 174 jury trials and, you know, what are your thoughts on it being a gamble?
0: Well, I think the number of 174, I would have guessed the number would have been a lot larger. Maybe you know a thousand, maybe. But what I'm thinking about, if these numbers are accurate, is that everybody doesn't necessarily want or need a jury trial, and jury trials are expensive. And if if the parties are going to absorb this cost, as they do in more, most court costs here in California, um, perhaps the parties don't want to spend the money you know, for that jury trial. You know, before tonight's show, as I was saying earlier, I I think I've been thinking about this idea in the abstract, just as an idea of having uh, a jury trial. But there are a lot of other considerations and a lot of assumptions that I think I would have made before tonight and listening to you with the statistics, they were just flat-out wrong assumptions. And um, the more and more I think about it and begin to think about it, and and the cost is a major factor, the more I think perhaps, you know, maybe we should only go by way of Texas or Georgia and give juries the right to decide very small areas, you know, within a family law case. I do like the fact, I forget which state you mentioned, um, decides custody but not visitation. I think that would be a great idea in California, the administrative nightmare, to have judges and, and excuse me, juries decide custody and visitation of children.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of ways that we could sort of dip our toe in the water, so to speak, if this was something that you know uh, that we start to look at more seriously. Right now, with all the budget costs, and I don't know if listeners are aware of it, you know, you mentioned it just briefly. Across the United States, about 20% of our civil courts have reduced hours or closed. In California alone, I think it's closer to 25% of our civil courts. Uh, we've reduced personnel, shuttered court buildings, reduce the number of of courtrooms and judges that hear on all civil cases. And the reason for that is because we've had to prioritize the the criminal cases, which have constitutional issues, that if they do not have their right to a speedy trial, that that we could be releasing uh, rapists, murderers, uh, robbers, violent criminals onto the street without any conviction. So we've had to prioritize criminal cases over civil cases, small claims, other cases, uh, lawsuits, and so on. So, you know, when we talk about the budget issues, we really need to look at the cost for the juries, and what is the time frame? Picking a jury? Imagine the process right now People coming to court five and seven times, taking time off from work, only to come to court and it's a continuance. Now, how many more days are going to be required for them to have a jury hear their case? In addition to the continuances, how are we going to guarantee that when they come to court, that court will, in fact, occur? So we could be actually doubling or tripling every court hearing. And I'm not sure that people have really thought about that before. And, and those are going to be some issues that we really do need to take into consideration.
0: Yes, those are issues that I had not even thought about. Catherine, uh, concluding with our last subject, what side do you come down on for or against implementing juries in family law?
1: Well, as I sort of hinted at, when... If someone would have asked me this question preparing for this interview, I would have said without hesitation that I don't endorse juries. I just think that the obstacles were too much. On the other hand, with all the problems uh, in our current divorce and custody problems, attempting to implement juries on a wide-scale basis I think would be a massive failure right now. But looking with an eye to the future and with modifications to smaller juries, a limited scope like what Texas and Georgia is doing, and additional improvement to the process of family laws, I believe that juries could be a part of the future. You know, when we would, you know, uh, are we talking about five years down the road? Are we talking about two years down the road? Are we talking about ten years? I don't know. We, we've certainly got some budget issues we need to to uh, deal with. We could probably start on a limited basis in one county, you know, say in California. But I think it's a little early to, to say that we're prepared and that this would be a good solution now but I think it could be part of our future. And I'd really like to understand a little bit more why the decisions in Texas uh, for jury trials was so low. Now, a, a couple of statements that I did read said that sometimes someone would choose a jury trial and then at the last moment there would be a settlement because the other party did not want to have their personal information disclosed to a jury, did not want their dirty laundry, so to speak, aired in front of a jury, and that they actually came to want to have a judge as opposed to 12 members discussing their case. So it will be interesting to see how the research pans out going forward.
0: It will be interesting to see. Catherine, um, we're getting towards the end of our interview. Uh, Would you like to make any uh, closing statements?
1: Well, I think it's important to note that even if we implement juries, their decisions, just as with judges, will not be without controversy or consequences. To think that a bias does not exist and won't impact juries the same as judges, I think, would be naive. In fact, as I alluded to, several articles, the deciding factor in choosing juries, hands down, was because the attorney thought it would provide an advantage, a bias favorable to their client's position and outcome. I mean, would you agree with that?
0: I definitely would agree with that. That's the only reason why I would ask for a jury in a criminal or civil case.
1: Yeah, I think that's the number one reason anyone chooses juries over judges, and vice versa, chooses a judge instead of a jury, too. Because you have that option, too, where people have the option to choose a jury and still go with a judge. So we really need to recognize that even though many people feel they're running away from a bias with a jury, they're actually just running into a group of 12 people with a bias, not one. And that, you know, can either work for or against.
0: Right. And sometimes a jury uh, doesn't rule or doesn't make a decision that you think it's going to make.
1: Oftentimes, but that's our perception. Again, that's why the research is so important. Perception versus research really shows us what we think we know versus what is true and factual. So it's really going to need to be an issue of research going forward. And then how, however many strides we can make in reform and fixing some of the business practices and family law will really hold the key to whether juries will be part of our future or not.
0: Do you think it's something that's likely to occur in the next five to ten years?
1: I think it's a very real possibility. On a limited basis, I don't think the money's there for a large scale.
0: Have you heard... uh, those in the uh, judicial and family law circles talk about this judge option, or excuse me, this jury option in California?
1: Yeah, I, I often attend, you know, the AFCC conferences, and for listeners who aren't aware of that, that's the largest training body for judges and attorneys, therapists and counselors in the United States, and there are, Uh, local and statewide uh, conferences, and I've never heard of this discussion either informally or formally at any of the AFCC conferences. It doesn't mean there hasn't been some discussion. Uh, You know, the country is pretty big. There's 50 states, and, you know, I have clients both domestically and internationally. But on a professional basis, Uh, involving attorneys and judges, I have not heard the discussion. Reform discussions on juries have always been outside the professional networks. Parents, it's parents driving this. And that's not to say they're wrong. I think we need to seriously look at how we conduct ourselves in the divorce industry. And we need to do right by families. We need to do right by children. But I can say consistently, I don't think we do. I think we've failed families, and I think we've failed children. And that's not through lack of trying in some cases. There are some very, very dedicated people who are committed to trying to improve the system, professionals in the system, professionals who have retired, who have been committed to reforming family law. The problem is, is that every time legislators get involved, They layer the system with new and additional requirements on families, and we are placing a burden so great on families that we are literally making families homeless, and we are literally breaking generations of contact for families, parents, mothers, and fathers that I talk to have no contact with their children, have not had contact with their children for years based on decisions made in family law. There needs to be a presumption, and I'm getting ahead of myself. That's another show. We probably should be discussing shared custody. And I'm I'm taking advantage of the fact that um, I really thought we would have a lot of people wanting to get on the phone and really voice their opinion on juries. And I think maybe I've done such a good job of giving them information, you and I tonight, Vince, that we just maybe anticipated and answered questions and um, people got the information that they've never heard before. But you really need to, ultimately, that's why I think people want juries. They want to have access to their children. They want better decisions on property, on child support, on spousal support. And that's why juries are wanted because they don't feel they necessarily get that with judges. So, you know, maybe we should also be assessing why we want uh, juries uh, when we look at this discussion point in reform. If we did a better job, if we fixed some of the issues, if we did shared custody between fit parents, I'm obviously not talking about unfit parents who have been convicted of violent felonies and crimes and drug and, and drunk driving arrests. Talking about fit parents, and the majority of parents who go through the family law court system are fit parents. But yet, we do more to assure access of felons than we do fit parents. I think that's wrong. I think there's something wrong with a system that does more to help convicted violent felons than we do to share custody of chair, parent, children, excuse me, of fit parents. So uh, that's my extra two cents to the show here. (laughs) Well,
0: that's very interesting. (laughs) I I, I would tend to agree with you. Um, You know, and there, like anything in the world, there are things that are – I look at things on a bell curve. You know, there's uh, some very good things about uh, our system – there are some very bad things and then everything is kind of like in the middle um just average or mediocre now i'm i'm the first one to tell you that it's not a perfect system but i pr- i would have to say it's probably one of the best systems that we have given all of the various backgrounds and personalities and characters that we have You know, when people get divorced and they start fighting and they start fighting about the custody and visitation, um, you know, there are people from, they're, they're all over the map. And I usually tell people that I work with, and sometimes I share this with clients, you know, if everything was good between a mother and father and they were getting divorced, they probably wouldn't need an attorney because they were able to work it out themselves. And as a matter of fact, this is maybe about four or five years ago, maybe even longer. Catherine, the Superior Court of California did a study, and they found that 30% of the people filing for divorce had lawyers. 70% did not have lawyers. And they they ranked from one to ten the the reasons why people didn't have lawyers. Surprisingly, money to hire a lawyer was not in the top five. As I recall, it was either six or seven. And I think you know sometimes I'm sitting in court doing cases, appearing on a family law case, and I and I see people, you know, having a problem or, you know, a lot of people just representing themselves not having a problem with the other spouse. You know, and they're able to work out some type of custody and visitation arrangement without this bitter, ugly battle. And for those people, they don't need a judge and they don't need a jury. They just need, you know, someone to sign off on it which is the judge's job, and, you know, they go about their business. So a lot of people, when you see them in custody battles, it's not the majority of people who are getting divorced.
1: See, there's a I, I wouldn't take argument with that. I I think, because I've heard the numbers, it's 15 to 17% is the number that's thrown around as to the number of high-conflict families. I'm telling you that based on... Calls for reform, I think the number is much higher, and I don't think the courts are capturing it correctly. And so you have to, I don't know, so I would question that number. Also, just to update you, uh, the numbers now thrown around are that 90 to 95 percent of all the families coming in for divorce and custody, one or both of the parties are representing themselves now. And, you know, what mm-hmm. that also brings up is, and we didn't even discuss it again because we thought we were going to be taking more calls, is if people come in representing themselves, what is that going to do in, to the jury system? You know, if, if people aren't mm. going to know how to get the evidence in. I mean, I didn't even think about that issue as, uh, you know, I mean, I, I was doing such a narrow scope for tonight's presentation because those numbers and the other issues were so important. But that brings up, what would we be doing if one or both of the parties start doing their own trials in front of juries? What would that be like? The judge is going to have to uh, admonish the courts when the evidence is not submitted correctly or the jury has to be um, sequestered because of a challenge or inappropriate evidence. I mean, we could be taking days or weeks to have some of these jury issues heard. And that's something I never contemplated either when I thought of jury, you know, jury selections or jury discussions, because I have been focused on the basic realities of the other issues. How do we pay for juries? How do we make room for juries? Have you even thought about the impact of parking? Where are we going to find the budget? How are people going to, you know put their families in the care of somebody else so that they can start serving six million slots that we're going to need if we were to implement juries. So this is, you know, this is pretty interesting because that's an issue that I've never thought about before. How would propers handle juries and, you know, would they have to take classes? Would the courts have to give a class to prep them? You know, again, lots of questions dealing with juries.
0: Well, those are issues that I definitely had not thought of. You know, what would a person representing themselves who has no, you know, legal training and experience, how would they prove a case or disprove a case in front of a jury?
1: Right. It's tough enough for for attorneys to do that. So, you know, (laughs) a, a topic for another show.
0: Topic for another show. Catherine, before we end the show tonight, um, I want to know, I want our audience to know, how can a person be one of your clients and why would they want to be?
1: Well, I, I think you can, I know that when we first met, Vince, you had never heard of a divorce coach, wasn't really sure what a divorce coach, a child custody coach could bring to a family. And really what I try to do is I try to give alternative scenarios to my clients that keep them out of court, that have helped them make better decisions with their attorneys. I try to explain the process because, you know, the the focus of an attorney is to protect their legal rights, protect their custody, to fight for their clients, whatever the goal is of the client in the courtroom submitting the paperwork. But really everything that happens outside the courtroom is really what drives the courtroom, but it isn't necessarily what an attorney is trained to do. And, you know, our last show on parallel parenting as an alternative to co-parenting, discussions on dealing with domestic violence, false allegations of child abuse. What do you do when the police are knocking on your door? These are all options I discuss with my clients in advance. Risk factors. I deal with international abduction as well as domestic abduction. Uh, parents contact me and say, I haven't I don't know where my child is. I, I haven't I don't know what school they're at, they've been removed from school. How do I find them? And as my client, they get a lot of information that normally isn't available or would cost them hundreds of dollars in a single phone call where I can provide the information for a fraction of the cost of the attorney. Now, having said that, I do not provide legal advice. I am not an attorney. I give them information for them to discuss with their attorney options, and then I try to make the job easier for the attorney by having the client make fewer mistakes outside the courtroom. You know how often email, social media, is used against clients. Stopping them from posting inappropriate comments on Facebook, on Twitter, on Pinterest, uh, on Instagram is a huge part of my business. Solving solutions like I just found out that my child was in the emergency room, but the other parent won't give me the information. I tell them how they can get that. I, I monitor, we talk about any emails that they're going to send to the other parent. We, we rework all the emails almost all the time, especially at the onset of the divorce, so that the emails are without emotion, they're businesslike, and they cannot be used against them in court. Phone calls, that's another issue. And then how to help them work with their children. Children are under tremendous emotional toil, and I give them the perspective of what their child might be feeling or how they can deal with different issues that will help their child cope better at school, how to not fight with the other parent over homework issues, what are their alternatives to getting report cards or school pictures. Also, alternatives like one client, they'd been married most of their adult life when they got their settlement, they were going to move into an apartment. I said, absolutely not. You have sufficient funds. You need to ensure you provide a stable relationship for your children and yourself going forward. And an apartment doesn't provide that with you're going to end up moving every few years. Talk with a real estate agent that you trust, meet with your accountant, find out what you can afford. And that person, oftentimes, you know, is so surprised to find out that they can afford a house when they didn't think they could. Or in several cases, my clients were going to back out of the deal like a, a rent to own. They just said, I'm too scared to go forward, and we discussed it. They, to this day, They are homeowners, and they are so, you know, uh, thankful because of the stability, the financial and emotional stability that it brings to their home. Even if they decide that they want to keep the family home, or can they afford to keep the family home, or if they can't, should they downgrade or under what terms should they give up the family home? Um so a lot of those things I help prepare them so that they when they speak to their attorney they have some starting points so that they save on the average of anywhere 10 to 30%. Um you know, I, since can, I, know I can that, I can
0: yeah. Go ahead. Kevin, I can see that in the last 90 seconds would you like to make a closing statement about tonight's show?
1: Yeah, I just want to remind listeners, and thank you. I I always like to be cognizant of the time. I want to remind listeners, if you are a parent struggling with divorce and custody, I urge you to seek out one of many support groups being offered all around the country and participate. If you go in person or go, uh, you know, a support group, participate on the phone, there are many options available. You do not have to go through the process alone. And you need more than an attorney in today's divorce environment. And by the way, Vince, I always want my clients to have an attorney. And then for Mm -hmm. listeners wanting more information on my company, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and Vimo. My website address is custodycalculations.com. And the website lists all of my information, contact information, emails, phones, if you wish to reach out and have a conversation on your specific divorce and custody issues, I encourage you to do so. Also, a reminder to everyone listening to the show today in addition to the free ebooks that Vincent offers on his website, please check those out. Listeners can also receive a free copy of one of my e magazines. Simply go to my website, custodycalculations.com, and enter your email. Uh, address and your name, and we'll forward a copy of the email, excuse me, the e-magazine to your inbox in a few days at no cost, just for being a listener. And Vincent, again, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation.
0: Thank you, Catherine, for joining us tonight, and hopefully we'll have you back next month as a guest. And I'd like to talk about talk about that parallel parenting.
1: Yep, we could probably definitely do a second show on that or shared custody. We don't really have, uh, you know, there's so many topics to cover that parents need. So there's no shortage of ideas or, or information we need to get out to parents.
0: Well, thank you, Catherine, and good night.
1: Good night, everyone.